Welcome back to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Austin Montgomery for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Goodwin Living CEO Rob Liebrick. The Alexander, Virginia-based senior living provider operates three communities in Virginia, serving over 1,100 residents. Goodwin Living is a nonprofit organization, and in 2024, the company will look to improve employee retention efforts while finding ways to grow its senior living and care offerings. In order to grow, Liebrick said Goodwin Living must return to basics on operations to improve its business model, and future growth includes expanded memory care services through its Stronger Memory program and greater home health offerings to extend the company's reach. We've doubled the number of people we serve with hospice services. We've doubled the number of people we've served with certified home health services. Our brain health program has grown to support over 20,000 people across the country. And so I, I see all those areas with opportunity for growth. I'd like to highlight the Continuum Conference taking place December 7th in Washington, D.C. Aging Media Network is bringing all of its publications together for this special event, inviting our readers from across the senior care and healthcare industries to discuss the trends and strategies reshaping how care is delivered to older and complex populations as silos are being broken and integration is more critical than ever. Visit SeniorHousingNews.com events to learn more. Now, here's my interview with Goodwin Living CEO, Rob Liebrick. Welcome back to Transform. Rob, thanks for joining us here today. We're really excited to chat with Goodwin Living. Austin, great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Of course. And let's just dive right in. For those who might not be familiar with Goodwin Living, can you just quickly outline the portfolio and what your footprint looks like? Yes, uh, absolutely. It's uh, Goodwin Living is an awesome organization. It's been in place since 1967, and we operate three communities directly with ownership uh, in the Northern Virginia area. Uh, so two in Alexandria, one in Fairfax. Uh, within those three communities, we serve about 1,100 uh, residents, so from independent living all the way through skilled. And in addition to that, uh, we have a number of other uh, parts of our portfolio. So inclusive of uh, some management services we provide for a HUD to a two housing project in uh, McLean, Virginia called Lewinsville. We have a robust uh, hospice program, uh, certified home health program, private duty home care, uh, an at-home program, which is excellent, uh, and uh, a clinical pastoral education uh, program, along with a brain health program uh, called Stronger Memory that we offer up. So a lot of different parts. Uh, to the overall organization. We're a faith-based not-for-profit, and so uh, that's our our founding. And I know us at SHN, we're very familiar with the Brain Health platform because obviously uh, we, we've been following along very closely in the memory care space recently. So we're really excited to, to hear more about some of the details and the inner workings of Goodwin. So uh, let's start off by talking about the recovery. I think uh, you and I have chatted about this before, but uh, you want to just talk about some of the major highlights in building back that you've really seen in the last three years? Because I know it's been quite a journey. Yeah, thanks, Austin. The The journey has been extensive. And I think really the building back is just been building back the trust with our team members to make sure that they know we have their back. Uh, that's been a very important story uh, over the last four years and certainly with COVID. And I think with the occupancy side and revenues, you know, we we made some intentional decisions to 
to err on the side of safety uh, for the well-being of our residents, those we serve, uh, and our team members. So we spent a few more dollars, uh, certainly in the in the millions, uh, as we were going through the challenges of COVID. So coming back from that, you know, our occupancy has actually been really solid and has stayed consistent in our uh, communities. And uh, at least for our, our life plan communities that we've operated, we just acquired a, a rental community last year. And that community itself has also seen a real surge in occupancy uh, over the last uh, 14 months. And so there's been recovery on that side of the equation. But I think uh, making sure that the reputation has stayed strong, that's been where we've been focused. And so uh, right before COVID happened, uh, we actually invested in some public relations and made sure that we could paint the picture we wanted to uh, have in the minds of the consumer and uh, the audiences, you know, inclusive of team members in the future. And I think that helped us because as COVID started and, and everything got painted with dire and, and sad, and we were able to combat that in our market and give a different view of what uh, the work we do uh, is. And so I think that's been probably our biggest part of our comeback. You know, that's really interesting to hear you mention that because I think I've heard that from a lot of operators that the message early on during the pandemic had kind of been taken away from operators and really had to, they had to be on the defensive. So interesting to hear that you're able to kind of uh, parlay that into a, into a positive where you could. And then with the positives on occupancy, what has been the trend that you've noticed this year when it comes to census? Uh, it sounds like it's improving. It is. It's improving in all aspects. So our, you know, we're mostly an independent living provider of housing. And in those areas, we've had, you know, even more folks uh, want to move into our communities, which has been great. Uh, we've seen a uplift, uh, uptick of the number of people on our priority club list. So uh, we love to see that. That means there's good energy out there of future people that want to move in. Uh, we've seen our assisted living and memory care uh, community side uh, jump uh, by about 8% uh, in this last year. So we, we go fiscal year till the end of September. Uh, so that that was quite successful for us to see. And then skilled nursing, which obviously around the country has been really hit and hurt in a lot of places. Uh, we maintain a really high focus on quality. Uh, we and then also maintain a really good occupancy. So we've been managing uh, still within the 90, 94, 95% range uh, for our skilled side. So all those parts have stayed uh, strong or gotten stronger uh, over the last year in particular. That's very exciting to hear. Congratulations on that. I'm sure it takes a lot of hard work and on the operations side to to make that work. And we'll get into some of the particulars here in a moment. But I, I want to make a distinction because I think it's pretty important um, in the ways that the recovery might have been different for Goodwin Living on the nonprofit side compared to uh, some of your private pay um, counterparts. I think making that distinction is really important. So do you want to talk about maybe how the recovery journey was a bit different um, just from from the nonprofit perspective, yeah, and I and I would say you know nonprofits are not immune to all that's been going on. Uh, certainly in the market, uh, I would say one of the things that we had maybe as a difference is the longevity of our brand in our market uh, because we've been in service for over fifty years. Uh, we've been consistent, stable. Uh, we've been a place that people could count on, a name that people could count on. And so I think that may be one of the biggest differences. Uh, a lot of the not-for-profits are, that are in our field have this, this history, uh, which often is, a, is an advantage. Uh, but I think 
through the through the pandemic time has certainly been uh, advantageous for us. And then you know we still have all the same challenges that all the for profits have, uh, except we don't have uh, investors that are looking for a return on their investment right away. So you know, that's another big, big advantage, I think, through this time when I went to my board of directors and uh, our trustees and said, hey, I think I'm going to need about $4 million outside of budget to pay for you know, protective equipment and do what's right to support our team members and our residents. She said, of course, you need that and go do it. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of debate or discussion around it. So I think that was one of the other key levers is just, you know, our money goes right back into the organization and service to community and into our residents. And I think the for-profits, I've worked with some great for-profits, uh, and I know the the challenges and struggles with occupancy and then subsequently with the expense management around uh, the, the equipment or the extra costs and then certainly wages uh, have been a major issue. And we had already started on that journey right before COVID again, right? So we, we were paying... I think $11.75 an hour at the base when I arrived uh, four years ago, a little over four years ago. And now we're paying $18.75 an hour to that same position. So we had already put a plan in place. And I think uh, for a not-for-profit with the substantial uh, resources we have, we're able to do that a little bit easier than some of the, the for-profits, which are really living uh, for that margin uh, year by year. And with that in mind, it sounds like the recovery trajectory is going strong. Do you want to just talk about some of the opportunities that you see ahead for Goodman Living in 2024? I know, obviously, with that acquisition that was recently made within the last year, um, there's probably a lot of work operationally that has to be done to uplift uh, a new asset. But do you want to just talk about what opportunities you see ahead in the next 12 months for Goodwin? Well, first and foremost, it's staying staying the course with uh, our service to our existing residents and supporting our team members and the people that we serve in the in the general community. So, making sure that we have all the basics down well, really well. You know, this this last year, uh, I would say our, one of our main focuses was on uh, turnover rates, and uh, we have 1,200 team members, just about 1,200 team members. And this year, we were identified as the top place to work in the region by the Washington Post, which is voted on by our team members and compared compared against other organizations, not just senior living organizations, but all organizations. And we felt great about that. We've been on the top 10 list for the last five years. And so to come into the, to the top spot uh, this year uh, felt great, given all the other things that are going on in our field. So for this year, uh, we have the same focus to stay attentive to our team members, really make sure that they understand how important they are to the mission of the organization, how important they are uh, for us to be successful. And uh, we had about a 27% turnover rate last year, which was the best we'd had in, in four years, uh, uh, in the four years that I've been here. And uh, that still means we have to hire you know, over you know, 400 people a year. So we're going to stay focused on uh, trying to keep that down to a minimum, get that to 25%, get that down to 20% over time. Uh, and I, I think that's a key opportunity for us. Uh, I think the other things that we see is we, you know, we've doubled the number of people we serve with hospice services. We've doubled the number of people we've served with certified home health services. Our brain health program has grown to support over 20,000 people across the country, uh, the Stronger Memory Program. And so I, I see all those areas with opportunity for growth. Uh, we've also seen growth in our at-home program. Uh, so I, I anticipate this year we'll continue to see a growth there. 
And as you mentioned, you know, the acquisition of a new community is always going to take up uh, some focus and time and energy. Uh, we've been able to bring that community from, uh, we were having discussions, 65% when we acquired it, uh, all the way up to 92%. And so there is still more some, more lift to be done there, uh, but a lot of the big lift has already occurred in the last 14 months. So making sure that community continues to stay the course uh, with success. And then, you know, looking for the other opportunities to serve, you know, those bound to be uh, some affiliation opportunities, I'm sure, uh, maybe some additional acquisition opportunities and uh, and see what comes uh, this year for sure. Definitely exciting. And we'll be watching right along with, with everyone else to see kind of where Goodwin uh, moves because there's always something uh, that, that you seem to be pushing forward and, and improving on. Do you want to just talk about now, I think talking about the nonprofit side is really important. And do you want to just talk about how you might be able to leverage your nonprofit status to improve operations, or if there's even a distinction that that's not even something you think about. Uh, it was just something that I was was curious about. Um, how do you how do you look to kind of leverage that nonprofit status in ways that um, some private pay partners can't? Yeah, I think you know I I think our not for profit status calls us to do work in a different way, right? So we gain the benefit of not always paying as much taxes as everyone else. So what are we giving back to the society uh, to make up for that, or or you know? do even more than that value that we're getting for that tax exempt status or that not-for-profit status provides to us. And I think as an organization, when you look at the work we're doing, uh, you know, is it possible for a for-profit to follow in our footsteps and do the same thing? Probably not uh, because the the margins wouldn't be there. So we, we spend a half million dollars on our brain health team, for example, a year, right? And that half million dollar investment has helped over the last, you know, two and a half, three years now impact at least 20,000 lives uh, for the better with our Stronger Memory program. That's something that we don't charge for. It's a complimentary service. Uh, so that's not very for-profit mentality, if you will. Uh, but it is in line with our our mission, which is to support, honor, and uplift the lives of older adults and the people who care for them. So uh, I think that's one key example. We can go out and do uh, different projects that are going to not necessarily provide a return on investment. I think the other thing uh, is that we we still have to be a strong business, and so uh, we we have to still be able to have you know more revenues coming in than expenses going out. Uh, we still have to be able to have investments in capital. You know, the last uh, few years when when COVID hit, all of us you know decided to go into our shell. And not not to focus on capital pay, you know, structures because we needed to reserve cash. No one knew exactly what was going to happen, so we were no different than any other provider uh, coming out of COVID. Uh, the the heart of COVID, I would say, you know, all of a sudden we were back to you know working on paying uh, using 100% of our depreciation uh, amount, you know, as a as a proxy uh, to invest in our our existing communities. So we we worked to spend 20 million dollars last year to to upgrade and and keep things going. So. I think as a not-for-profit, you know, our, our resources go right back into the community more consistently, and we don't have investors that are looking for a return of you know, 25 35%, or 40%. I appreciate you sharing that because I think talking about the opportunities is important and also talking about the challenges is, is doubly important as well. Are there some unique challenges that you run into with the, with the nonprofit status? I would really like to know just kind of you think that some of your challenges, obviously you share some of those, including um, just challenges on workforce and expenses. 
But uh, do you think there there are some challenges that are unique to being a nonprofit senior living provider? Well, I, I've experienced a few of them. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about being at some of the for-profits that I served uh, with and, and Brightview and uh, Aegis Living uh, being two of them, uh, even Erickson uh, Living is a, a, a proxy for uh, a for-profit management company uh, with not-for-profit communities. But decision-making, you know, decision-making for us goes through a few more steps, uh, certainly. So I have a board uh, that I have trustees that is responsible for the fiduciary success of the organization. Uh, they, they hire and have one employee, that's me as the CEO and president. And so if, I, you know, if we want to get things done, uh, sometimes it takes a few more steps or a little bit longer. Uh, and so I think that's a, a bit of a disadvantage for not-for-profits. And then the second thing I would say is you know, my ability to raise capital is really limited uh, because I don't have a return on investment um, as a, a driving force. Uh, so, you know, having to get much more creative uh, on that side if we want to, you know, find additional capital to do acquisitions or uh, you know, et cetera, or growth opportunities. Uh, you know, at Aegis or at Brightview, we could we could raise a fund and have people you know come along uh, and provide us cash uh, for a return. Uh, that's not such an easy process at a not-for-profit. So, and I think another thing too is uh, as I'm learning more about the space is understanding the relationship that nonprofit providers really have when it comes to. Uh, of CMS and just what it takes to maintain those relationships. But in, in what ways do you think that the relationship between providers and CMS needs to evolve just going forward as the demographics continue to trend older? Would really like to know just do you think if there's some changes that need to be made just to, to help, uh, help, help CMS really understand the work that nonprofit providers are doing? Austin, that's a sensitive time to ask that question when we're having uh, suggestions of, you know, what kind of workforce requirements uh, should be in place, um, you know, staffing requirements for for our field. So, uh, I think I think the conversation with CMS uh, is multifold. Uh, one, you know, what can we do as practitioners to provide best of class ideas that will help prevent the need for care in the future. And how can we roll those out on a holistic basis? That's where we talk about exercise or movement, physical movement being one of the greatest gifts that anyone can do. Well, what are we doing as a, a country? What is CMS doing uh, to encourage us to uh, push that out uh, to a society that needs it uh, to, keep, to stay healthier? And if we can keep people healthier longer, we don't need to use as much resource on the care side of the equation. And that may not be good news for providers of care services, uh, but it is the right answer when you have a doubling of older adults and a decrease in the birth rates and a immigration policy that does not really focus on welcoming people in uh, as much as we need to, to provide care uh, for all these newer, older adults. So I think CMS needs to start there uh, with thinking differently, radically differently about its approach to uh, future care through prevention. Uh, I think there is a, a deep dialogue that, that you know, I think we're starting to see some um, appreciation for. There's, there's a new guide program that CMS is working towards. I think that's important. That's going to help uh, dementia practitioners be able to provide services and, and have uh, per member per month payments available. So I think there's some innovations that are coming out of CMS. More of those uh, elements are going to be important. Uh, 
and really seeking out uh, all, not just for for, for not-for-profits, but also for-profits, you know, really trying to seek out the partnership element of the relationships. Uh, not so much gotchas anymore, but recognizing that anyone who's in this field and choosing to be in this field, it's hard work. It's really a hard business and we should be appreciating each other a lot more. There are some actors that are not here for the right reason. There are ways to identify them quickly and help them exit uh, while still partnering with the rest that are here for good, good intentions and trying to do good work. And I think those conversations need to be deeper. And you touched on it uh, briefly, just talking about the uh, need for some immigration reform. But um, I know that Goodwin Living is really focused on helping people uh, transition um, to the United States through the Goodwin Living Citizenship Program. So do you want to just give us an update on that workforce initiative? And it seems like it's something when we've talked in the past that it's it's a bright spot for you, for, for your team. Um, so really, really would love to just hear an update on just how that program's going. Yeah, thanks, Austin. It's one of the greatest gifts that we get is by listening to our residents. And back in 2018, a resident came to the table and said, "I love our I love our team members. They're awesome." And our our organization, we have over 65 countries represented uh, by our workforce, and 25% of our workforce are not U.S. citizens, which is intriguing. And so this person said, "Hey, I recognize that a lot of folks want to become U.S. citizens, but there is a fee, a $725 fee." for that to be a reality. And when you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's impossible to save up $725 for the the effort to become a citizen. What if we provided that as a foundation, as a not-for-profit to our team members? And so that idea sparked uh, back in 2018. And now, uh, five years later, we've been able to see 163 people benefited uh, by that program uh, on their way to citizenship. Uh, many who have become U.S. citizens and uh, who are going to become. And when you hear the stories that people have gone through uh, and chosen to be a part of this country, you realize how humbling uh, all all that is going on in the world really is. The the challenges, the the misery, the 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 family uh, challenges that people go through, and and wanting to be a U.S. citizen, it's not easy. It's really not easy. And so we wanted to make it at least a little bit easier. And so uh, there's the financial support that occurs on that side, Austin, but there's also the support from our residents. So we've teamed up our uh, aspiring U.S. citizens, our team members and their family members even, with residents uh, within our communities and uh, members of our at-home program. And they are the mentors for for our team members to get through the U.S. citizenship test, which also is not easy. Uh, so over 100 questions that you can you can get asked along the way, and uh, and so now we're creating bonds of real relationship and love and appreciation, and uh, it's amazing. It's amazing to see the outcome of that. We do a celebration. Uh, of that every year, uh, multiple times a year. It's so so impactful every time uh, we we have the celebrations. And we, as a as a faith based not for profit, we've said, well, if we're doing something right, uh, in this case, uh, even when we do something wrong, we'd love to share our learnings so that others can you know either avoid the mistakes we've made or follow through with with the good ideas. And in this case, if people went to goodwinliving.org, uh, they would find a, a playbook that they could download 
and implement their own citizenship program wherever they are. And we, we would love for more and more organizations. We're hearing uh, a number of folks who have already uh, done this and started this program in their own uh, areas. And we just think it is the exact answer, one of the exact answers we need to provide to the market to say we are an intentional organization of welcome. And we think uh, really as a field, uh, everyone should be doing something like this to say we we welcome in uh, folks to uh, come to us and, and serve in our field. Uh, we're going to need that given all the challenges with workforce that we can see already today and, and predict will only get worse over the next 20 years. You know, I'd love to see like a big mural and then have like all that representation of the 65 countries. That would just be so cool to see. I mean, that's just uh, it's great to hear that that the, pro- the program's had so much success. So that's really uh, encouraging, I think. And we, we've talked about staffing a little bit here, and I want to dive a little bit more deeply into it. You obviously touched on the importance of curbing turnover. Uh, I think more and more operators are starting to think about kind of kind of closing that back door, if you will, um, to help employees stay in in their roles and to see a, a path of career development. So do you want to just talk about some, some of the strategies that have helped kind of curb this staffing problem, in, in your opinion? Yeah, and we still have work to go, uh, and I recognize we're we're in a better situation than many, right? So I, I want to be mindful of where people are coming from. Uh, I I think at the end of the day, a lot of the work uh, we all do is trying to build up the strengths of our managers, because a lot of times people leave the manager, not the organization, and so. We've spent a lot of time building programs, uh, emerging leader programs for new managers to provide skills and tools for them to be better at their work and interacting with their team members. I think that's been a really important part of the equation for us. Uh, we, we definitely, as an organization, we love to promote from within. So having career paths identified and helping people on their journeys. And maybe you know our longest tenured team member has been working with us for 53 years in the same role. And, you know, in in dining services. So not everyone needs to have a promotion along the way, uh, but more skill acquisition, an opportunity for their voice to be heard. We spend a lot of time ensuring that we have ways for every team member to provide feedback on how we can get better. And so I think that's a a key factor. People want to have a voice. They want to work for someone they like. They want to work for an organization that has a strong mission orientation. Uh, Those are all things that we think are, are critical and important and then uh, keep on asking the questions of, of where the needs are at. So recently, you know, we worked really hard to provide a complimentary education to anyone who wants to be a part of Goodwin Living. And you know, we saw at Starbucks, you could go and work there and, and they'll pay for your college degree. Well, what about us? We're, we're a faith-based not-for-profit. That's the minimum standard for us too. We should be able to do that also. And so uh, we started there. We started being able to provide $5,250 a year towards education pursuits. And and we don't require people to stay with us after uh, we've paid that. And so I think that's been a big step in the right direction for us. But as soon as we did that, we realized a lot of people have already gone through and paid a lot of money for their education. So this year we're stepping forward and forgiving uh, upwards of $5,250 a year for those who have uh, debt uh, that they've accrued through uh, student loans. So we just keep on listening uh, and having tools to listen more intently, more consistently. And as we get that feedback, taking actions and then showcasing those actions back to our team members. You know, I think it's a a simple formula uh, that when done consistently, uh, you know, hopefully will continue to bear uh, good fruit. 
Definitely. Uh, and I think more and more operators are starting to get more granular when it comes to staffing and really understand what some of the day-to-day issues that their staffs have. So that's really um, encouraging to hear as well. In the last five minutes we have left, uh, let's just talk about uh, 2024. Um, what areas will be the main focus for Goodwin Living in 2024? Is it new growth? Is it new programming? What areas are really looking at? Because I know we talked about staffing, but just generally, when you look at operations, what are you looking at for next year? Yeah, I think, and so we're, we've already come into our new year uh, as of October 1st. So this is our new fiscal year. And for us, you know, as I referenced before, a lot of our growth, uh, we're built out at uh, two of our campuses. So we don't have an opportunity to build more apartments. Our growth in those two communities is to make sure that we're serving people the right way and that they're receiving the services and positioning those communities for ongoing success so that we have the dollars set aside to invest in the capital that will be needed. Uh, so many times I've seen organizations uh, not do that. They put the money into the shiniest penny and then they forget that, gosh, there's these other communities that really deserve um, the same attention or even more sometimes. So we're going to stay consistent with that. Uh, we're going to also really focus on the growth of our uh, programs that are home community-based services oriented. So this is one of the hardest uh, equations to solve because it's very people intensive, but we also think it's one of the most important. Most people don't want to move to a community. Most people want to be served where they're at in their homes or in their apartments. And so we need to be better at accommodating people and having our services available for them. So, uh, you know, being a provider of, that, of choice for folks, certainly from a housing perspective is key, but also being a provider of choice for uh, those who are using uh, home community-based services. We just started an outpatient therapy program. Love to see that continue to grow more rapidly. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, we're, we're had really good success with our hospice uh, program. Love to see that continue to grow and serve more people. It's very mission-oriented. It's very fulfilling work. Uh, our certified home health work has been really important to us. Uh, and our at-home program, I think, is going to be critical uh, this year to see the growth there. I think more and more people are understanding that if they don't move to a community, they need to have a plan. And if they don't have a plan, then in crisis, they're going to be out of luck. And we've seen that a, a few times now, just in the last several months, really wealthy, well-to-do folks who have millions of dollars of resource, all of a sudden find themselves in a crisis and they can't get resources to come in and provide care. And that's a problem. You know, that's a broken problem. If, if the wealthiest of our folks cannot receive that, think about the people who don't have the means. Uh, they're really in trouble. So uh, an at-home program becomes that much more important, uh, which provides for people care coordination and having uh, social workers come around them with resources of who to call, where to get information, et cetera. It's, there's so much information out there that having someone help direct you is, I think we think is going to be critical uh, this year. And then you'll, you'll see us really focused on our brain health program, the Stronger Memory program, trying to get that into as many hands as possible. Uh, we, we wholly believe that a national level, we can push off the need for care by a year, two, or in the case of my mom now, going on 11 years where we don't need to provide caregivers to her. We don't need to spend all the emotional capital uh, for her. And as a country, we just have so many people who are in need and will be even a growing number of people in need. Uh, we need to have programs like that. So getting that into the hands, rolling that out through different state organizations. We have a CMS grant uh, that we're working on rolling that out in Virginia right now. We've worked with the state of Maryland to roll that out. Uh, working with a number of different organizations to make that more prevalent for more people uh, will be really important. And then uh, we talked about the citizenship side. 
I think for us, we're, we're going to want to get more involved in helping uh, on the immigration discussion because for us, it's not necessarily an immigration discussion. It is a workforce discussion that if we don't solve, we're going to be in a world of hurt as a as a nation, not being able to support our elders as they are going to be in more and more need of support. And I think it's a absolute disservice to them that we need to solve today uh, versus trying to figure it out, you know, five years from crisis time. Uh, we're already in a crisis in a lot of places in the country. Uh, so I think if we can add a voice to that work, uh, we, we're going to do that too. Uh, be, really focus on being a provider of choice, an employer of choice uh, this year, and then a champion of important causes such as immigration, uh, such as brain health. Those are going to be our focuses this year. Rob, well, I really appreciate you joining me here on Transform. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to be with you. Thanks, Austin. That does it for this episode of Transform. I'm Austin Montgomery for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.